This is an ABC podcast. Dan Richards grew up in Wales in a family of adventurers. His great aunt Dorothy was a famous mountaineer who climbed the peaks of Europe and North America in the early 20th century. Dan's father liked adventure too, and the family home in Wales was full of mementos, which fascinated Dan as a kid. In the study, there was a picture of his dad standing outside a tiny cabin with a bunch of friends somewhere in the Arctic Circle. And also in that study, there was a strange artefact, a huge bony thing that looked a bit like an animal's skull, only it wasn't. It was the pelvis of a polar bear, a bleached old relic that Dan's dad had chanced upon while in the Arctic wastes. In his mind, that cabin in the photo was an outpost on the edge of another world. And so grown-up adult Dan set out to travel the world in search of these furthermost cabins and isolated stations, places where you can find some clarity far away from the noisy din of the world. Dan's journey took him to a mountain monastery in Japan, to a haunted hut on the edge of a glacier in Iceland, to a base in the United States where people are trying to replicate the conditions on the planet Mars. Dan Richard's book is called Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And I spoke to him in 2020 when he was at home in Edinburgh. Hello, Dan. Hello. Tell me about that amazing artefact your dad brought home from the Arctic Circle. Yes. So um, just before I was born, uh, my dad returned from an expedition he'd been on, on Svalbard, which is in the Arctic. It's the last land before the North Pole. He'd been up there on a geological expedition um, with some other people. And he returned, um, I suppose, a couple of weeks before I was born. And he brought home with him a polar bear pelvis that he had discovered um, on the fjords and beaches up there. Um, And it always remained in the house as this amazing artefact from a time before I was born, which I think everyone's always slightly intrigued about this idea that things went on before they were born. Um, And also this thing that always reminded me of him when he was younger in that great white silence, you know, exploring. So it was kind of like a prism of adventure that always existed in the house growing up. Dan, when I was little, I used to study all the intricacies of the paintings that were hanging on the family walls and the family house. And I think I knew those paintings as a little kid better than my parents did. Was the pelvis a bit like that for you? Yeah, it was It was just the most incredible thing. And I would go in and, and look at it and, and really inspect it and really kind of take it all in. And it was kind of when you picked it up, it was kind of it was heavier than one might expect. And the broken ends of the hips kind of looked like coral inside. And I wasn't really sure what a pelvis was. So you have to imagine you've got the two kind of like ball cups of where the hips would go in. And they kind of look like eye sockets to me. And I was like, wow, is this like a polar bear skull? I really didn't have any idea of what, you know, this would this this came from but i knew it came from this ice bear and that idea the idea that my dad had been up there in this land of mythical beasts it was absolutely mind-blowing to me your dad sounds like a wonderful man and very crafty as well crafty in the sense as making things with his hands Uh, tell me about the trip the family took to greece when you were little and what he was making there when i was about 18 months old he took the family off to the greek isle of spetsis because he had got a place with a team of craftsmen and carpenters to build a working replica of a sailing galley, the Argo, which was Jason and the Argonauts' ship when they were on the quest for the Golden Fleece. I know. And, you know, whenever I talk to people about this, um, I always make the point that, you know, whatever happens when you're a kid is kind of normal. You know, and so growing up, I was in the sort of family where my dad would up sticks and go and then work for a year with hand tools in the traditional sort of, well, the ancient Greek way to build a sailing galleon. And it was with an adventurer called Tim Severin. Yeah, he built this amazing boat. And I always loved the fact that, you know, everybody was using hand tools, but my dad took over his Black & Decker wood router. (laughs) 
and you had all these old Greek guys who had kind of like never seen anything like this before. And so I like to think that that boat was built exactly, you know, exactly with the original Skipanis and hand tools and everything. But some of it was possibly done with a Black & Decker router while no one was looking because they were just so fascinated by this new technology, you know? So adventuring seems to be very much in the family blood. Tell me about this adventure you went on with your dad as an adult, where you decided to climb up the Matterhorn in the Swiss Alps together. Well, I wrote a book where I followed in the footsteps of my great, great aunt and uncle who had been pioneering mountaineers. And um, I went climbing in their footsteps all over Europe and the UK and various places. And I ended up being on top of a mountain in Switzerland, which was one of their great achievements to go up the north face of the Dent Blanche, which is in the sort of um, Pennine Alps of Switzerland. And the first time I went up, I went up with my father, because my dad, as well as being an explorer and making these amazing boats, had been quite a sort of, you know, very adept mountaineer in his youth. And so we got up um, onto the Dent Blanche, and we hiked up through this invisible line, the line of kind of altitude sickness. We got above the snow line, above the main Fepecla glacier, and we stayed overnight in this amazing cabin, which had a guardian who was happy for, let's say, $500 to cook uh, you a meal because it's Switzerland and you could get a beer as well. And then she would wake you up. And then the next morning, everybody in the cabin would um, light up this mountain in the pre-dawn blue and go for the top. And my dad and I were doing this and following in our relatives' footsteps. And essentially, my dad discovered on this trip that he was 60 and not 30. And I discovered that I didn't really know very much about, you know, top end alpinism. So we kind of we got up this mountain and we were going very slowly. And then um, we got somewhere near the top and then sort of turned around and went back because we didn't want to get stuck on the mountain. Uh, and so, of course, we got stuck on the mountain. Uh, by that point, we didn't have a working phone, which was a mistake. But um, Tim, my dad, decided that we weren't quite sure where we are. The conditions were not great, so we should stop. And he said, we'll, we'll bivouac here on this ledge. And the ledge was kind of like a park bench. So you'd think, well, that's great, isn't it? Except we weren't sure quite what was beneath our feet in terms of what our legs were dangling over. And it could have been a short drop. Uh, down to some lovely, you know, snow, and then we could have carried on. Or it could have been about a kilometre drop to a very blunt German-sounding glacier, you know? So we did the right thing, and we stopped. Um, And we roped ourselves on, and then we just sat out uh, eight or nine hours until it was light enough that we could carry on. Now, could you sleep on that ledge? No. I mean, the thing was... Because we, we weren't quite sure what situ- what our situation was. We knew we were safe, but we, we had, we didn't have much kit with us. We didn't have anything to make a hot drink, say. So we, we had a rucksack. So we kind of got everything out of the rucksack and stuck both of our pairs of legs in the rucksack. So we had a makeshift sleeping bag and we just kind of sat very close together and we talked for these eight hours. And it was probably the longest I've kind of like had a one to one long chat with my dad. I suppose you couldn't see much at all stuck on that ledge next to your dad. Well, you'd be surprised. It coincided with one of the anniversaries of Wimper going up the Matterhorn. And he was one of the first climbers to, well, or the first climber uh, to, to get to the top of the Matterhorn. And there is an outdoors company called Mammoth. And they spent the whole night putting up flares on his original route. So you have to imagine there is a snowstorm coming across us, but in the breaks in the snowstorm, when you can see the moon, you can also see these red flares forming this trail up the Matterhorn. So we had a grandstand view, but also were slightly concerned that maybe only we could see those flares and we'd actually gone insane because it's not a normal thing to sort of see this stuff, but it happened to coincide, happen to coincide with that anniversary. But we could kind of see, we could see we were very, very high. We could see there was this huge chasm sort of gulf in front of us. We could see the Matterhorn and we could see the moon sometimes. And very sort of far down in the valley, we could see the lights of Zamat. So it was incredible. So what did you and your dad talk about all those hours in the darkness together? Well, we talked about quite a lot of things, but the the main thing that came out of it was the fact that... so. 
Ivor and Dorothea, these two amazing relatives that I was on the trail of, um, Ivor was I.A. Richards, who's um, a literary critic and scholar and poet, and he was friends with T.S. Eliot and various things, and so he was known as a man of letters of the 20th century, and he taught at Cambridge over here in the UK and also Harvard, but not, nobody really knew very much about his mountaineering life. And Dorothea, his wife, was this pioneering female climber. She set up the first ever climbing club by women for women, which is still going in Wales over here, called the Pinnacle Club. In 1936, she went through Burma on her own, just top to bottom, you know, went all adventuring. They were the most pioneering, amazing couple. She was a proto-suffragette. You know, she went through the First World War doing all of these amazing things. And I was following them for this book. And it turned out that my father, likewise, in his youth, he had found them so physically and sort of almost their stature so intimidating that he had been unable as a child and then as a sort of adolescent to really talk to them at all. So he had gone on a series of what I would describe as pilgrimages across the UK and Europe, just as I had. And he had climbed to a far better degree of proficiency than myself, a lot of their great routes and mountains. So you're sitting on the side of the Matterhorn and he's only just telling you this now. That he's done the same thing you've done, which was to replicate the great mountain climbing feats of this great art. And you're only learning this now on the side of the Matterhorn. He had mentioned that he'd done climbing and that he had an interest in them, but he had never made it explicit that he had, well, for example, we were on the side of the Dent Blanche, this amazing mountain, and he was explaining to me that he had been on this mountain before. He had climbed this ridge called the Fapekla Ridge, which is a very serious climb. You know, it's not their north face route that they put up in 1928, you know, in tweeds with a hemp rope. And when you look at what they did with that, you're just like, blimey, you know, these people, they were so physically strong and brave, you know, to do these things with their guides. It was extraordinary. The first time that route had been done and it wasn't climbed again for 15 years. He had done a secondary route, but it was still a great thing to do. You know, extraordinary when you consider that he turned up with his little book sort of route map by the Alpine Club, the UK Alpine Club, which was written in a kind of climbing algebra. And he got there with his friend Pete Healy, and they'd never been there before. And over the course of a couple of days, you know, they got high enough on the mountain and then they went up this route and then walked down again. It's extraordinary. But the sad, sad thing about it is he'd done all this and Ivor and Dorothea were still alive and he never told them about any of these explorations. Why? I think because... It would have been such a blow had they not cared. It would have been so sad for him. And also, he'd kind of grown up in a sort of family where it was assumed that everyone loved each other, you know, but it was never made explicit. It was never said. It was assumed that people would know that people were proud of other people in the family, but it would certainly never have been said. And there is this kind of like slightly tragic comic element to this, that he would go kind of all the way around the world to kind of pay his respects to these people. And all he had to do was actually talk to them. But he never did. He would prefer to sort of do these amazing feats of endurance and alpinism. That was easier for him than ever trying to have a conversation. I think it's a very British thing. And from that moment on, I, I decided that that book, the Climbing Days book that I did, was really an attempt to right that wrong. Because it's such a waste of time, I think, to go through life not expressing yourself to people for fear that they may not reciprocate. You know, we need to take these risks of connection because otherwise those people then they go, they're gone and you regret it. What, what about the both of you stuck on that mountain? It's unusual to be in a space like that, slightly fearful of death, cold, huddling together on the side of a mountain. Were you able to say such things to each other then? Yeah. We actually said to each other, we will not be like other generations. You know, we will talk to each other. We will tell each other that we love each other and we will say these things and we will, we will communicate because so often people fall out and then they make the rash decision that that's it. Or there are certain subjects that people won't talk about for fear of offense or that for fear of kind of like upsetting, you know, but it's a conversation. The conversations need to be had because it's through conversations like that, that relationships move forward and they grow. Was your dad able to say those things to you? I think, well, the best thing that ever happened to my dad was that he met my mom. And I would say that, of course, because I came out of that. But at the same time, I think 
you know, my mum, she was always at great pains to tell us we were loved. She was always at great pains to kind of like celebrate our achievements and things like that. And in that respect, being up there with my dad, it didn't feel that abnormal in that way. But it, I think it was a great opportunity just to talk. It was an amazing space to just be able to say things. So seeing a picture of your father at Svalbard got you thinking about remote mountain cabins and faraway places. Is there something romantic about such places, Dan? I think there is. I think the kind of the idea of building or outpost or refuge as kind of witness. You know, if you're talking to people about outposts, you're talking to them about far flung places like Captain Scott's hut in the Antarctic. There's nothing in the Antarctic. There are no trees to cut down and make things with. So everything that they took was from Britain, you know? So that hut that still exists, it was made as a flat pack in Poplar in London and it still endures. And it's the only thing that's still there of that great expedition. You know, Captain Scott and a couple of his team are still there buried in the snow, but everyone else went home. And so this idea of building as witness has always intrigued me. And yes, the other thing he brought back from that trip up to the Arctic to Svalbard was a photograph of he and his team in front of this very ordinary looking garden shed, effectively. But it's probably the most northerly shed on earth. And uh, there's this lovely picture of he and his team. And he has, you know, an elephant gun next to him because he was the expedition marksman in case they met. And you look at this shed and you look at this team and you think, well, you know, even with a gun, that shed's not going to stand up to a polar bear. I mean, I'm surprised that shed stood up to f five people sleeping in it. I mean, that's the most, you know, the shed itself looks quite embarrassed. You know, it's so out of place like that. <laughs> And I began thinking there are all of these structures on earth that are really like springboards to adventure and they're beckoning people on. And I began making this list of where would be cool to go. If you could go anywhere, where would be cool? And then often I don't realize those things are impossible and they end up happening just through sheer force of will, I think. So the first place you wanted to visit was in Iceland, a place that's dear to my heart. What was the outpost you wanted to visit there? So when I was growing up, I was fascinated with Iceland just as a concept. Um, you know, this land of ice and fire, full of volcanoes, full of glaciers, all of this stuff. And when I was starting the Outpost book, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go to, um, you know, cabins that were near volcanoes? You know, wouldn't it be cool? Maybe observation cabins. So I got in touch with various people at various universities and eventually got through to the right person at Reykjavik University. And I said, do you have cabins that are near volcanoes for studying volcanoes? And she said, no. And I said, oh, okay, uh, that's slightly disappointing. Um, what, what do you have? <laughs> and she said, we have these amazing uh, buildings called Silahus. And Silahus um, were originally built by the Norse, and they were dots to be joined on long expeditions across the unpopulated hinterland regions of that island. Many of them started out, if you can imagine, like igloos made of turf and rocks. So they were really just... I suppose, man-made caves where these teams of Norse could kind of shelter and warm up and perhaps they'd leave food rations there so that they could make these journeys possible. Why would they want to do that in the first place? Because there's nothing there. It's a tundra and it's volcanic and there's, like you said, there's no trees, there's no food to be gleaned. Why were they up there in the first place, Dan? Well, Often they would make long journeys to kind of congregate and take decisions. So um, Iceland has this amazing parliament stone near a lake, which is actually slap bang on the middle of the um, North Atlantic Ridge. Oh, yeah, that's Thingvitli. Yes. Thingvitli. You see, yes. I'm talking to the right person about this. This is yeah, great. I know how to pronounce it because my friend Kari taught me how to do it. Yeah, it's the old uh, Icelandic Viking parliament from the Middle Ages. I didn't know anything about these trails and these houses that were used by Viking chieftains to go across the tundra of Iceland, to get to Thingvitlir for the parliamentary meetings? I mean, the roads, these ancient Norse tracks, they are also the kind of lightning rods for myth and story and supernatural energy. So you have to imagine that these um, Silahus, over the millennia, they've been rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt, often to the eccentric whims of whichever local Icelandic group 
were kind of like doing the the renovations. So some of them look like extraordinary pyramids. Some of them look like one man tents in wood. Some of them look like pigeon lofts now. Some of them look like um, tabernacle, tin tabernacle chapels. And I went out with Stefan, a wonderful man who runs an organization called Further Fjellag Islands, which is, uh, which translates as the Icelandic touring company. And they run a number of Silahus for walkers and tourists to make in the same way that the Norse needed to make these great journeys. Tourists can now make slightly more modest journeys around the belly of a glacier, say, or to Thorsmark. So they go down this amazing uh, valley, which is, you know, many tens of miles long, but they see a lot of this psychedelic technicolor Icelandic beauty. So what was the silo house you were going to? I was going to one which is um, slap bang opposite the second largest uh, glacier in Iceland. And this silo house was called Kvitanus. Kvitanus was was built in its current form in, I think, 1932. It looks like the most beautiful little cottage on two stories with little windows. And it's got turf ramparts up the side. Um, and then in front of it is this kind of like crazed, cold uh, face of this glacier. And then um, around it, you have just these tundric sweeping, a kind of a sea of long grass and you have uh, geese flying over. And it was the most beautiful thing. And the time when we went, it's 24 hour daylight. So maybe in the middle of the night, you'll get a slight lull and it will seem like dusk. And then rather than setting, the sun then comes up again. So this, again, supernatural kind of uh, arena where all this was happening. And we were going out to Kvitanus to renovate it. And so we were going to take away one of the turf ramparts and replace rotten wood and various things. And as we drove up, Stefan, and there was also a carpenter there called Atli, said to me, he turned round from the driver's seat and I was in the back and he said, you know that this place that we are going, it's a very haunted house. <laughs> and in Iceland, you know, the competition for the most haunted house is quite intense. Was there any sign of it once you got there? I have to ask, did anything un untoward happen while you're in this joint, Dan? Well, we unpacked and then Stefan said, right, let me explain about the ghost. And he said, you see outside, we have all of these kind of undulations. Um, and he said, there are the remains, the kind of ruins of a farmhouse. There was a farmer and his wife, and they had a girl who came to help with, with the animals. And the farmer tried it on with the girl. She wasn't having any of it. So he locked her outside in a snowstorm and she died. And then his wife killed him to avenge the poor girl. And then Stefan just stopped and said, you know, and gave a sort of like open hand shrug. And so that's probably the most Icelandic story you'll ever hear. You know, there was nothing <laughs> wasted there. And I said, righto, I see. And then he took, took me around the corner to, in the cabin and there was a room full of beds. And one of the beds, which is, this is always a bad sign, was at 90 degrees to all the other beds. And he pointed <laughs> at this bed and he fixed me with his eye and he said, that is the bad bed. And he said, if you sleep in that bed, you will meet the ghost. You know, the girl will run through you. And, you know, while this was happening, Stefan was telling the story and Atlee, this carpenter, was just standing at my elbow, nodding sagely. So, I, you know, and I was like, oh, right. Oh, OK. And I was fully expecting to ha things to happen. And so I very, I think, in retrospect, very sensibly slept up in the loft rather than sleeping downstairs. <laughs> And we worked on this building for a week. And then one day I came down the stair ladder from upstairs and I found Stefan looking like a completely washed out wreck. You know, you have to imagine sort of rings around his eyes, very red eyes. Um, and he said, I had a long night with the ghost. And he explained what happened. It was a, a series of hauntings, really. It was a bit like the film Inception, you know, dreams within a dream within a dream. He'd woken up. And he had this great weight on his chest and he found he could not move. And he was downstairs, not in the bad bed, but in the front room where we all slept. Um, and he found he could not move at all. And it was silent. It wasn't quiet. There was no sound apart from his kind of very rackety breathing. So he started to talk as best he could because he knew what was happening. And he said to it, whatever the thing was, look, I'm here to renovate this building. I'm not here to do any harm. I'm sorry I've disturbed you. Uh, my team are upstairs. 
we're you know respecting the place and the landscape and things and so he started talking about the work we were doing and after and in you know he's he doesn't know how long but after minutes or hours suddenly he was free and he could move again and the thing had gone and so he turned to sit sideways out of the bunk and he put his head in his hands and then suddenly he was aware that there was this oily twilight pooling in the room and then after another period of time, he doesn't know how much, he climbed upstairs and he went into Atley's room and he was absolutely sort of like shaking at this point, all the adrenaline and everything. He was absolutely sort of like beyond it. And so he just got into bed, still fully clothed because it was very cold with Atley. And Atley turned round, had woken up, obviously, and turned round wide eyed and made and opened his mouth. And Stefan was about to tell him what had happened and then woke up downstairs with a weight on his chest and he could not move and he was back at the start and that happened several times you know many many times and he told me all this and then he finished by saying of course being Icelandic I'm part troll so I can deal with it and I thought yeah fair enough I mean I'm glad that didn't happen to me <laughs> I don't think I am part you know I'm part Welsh I don't, I'm part, does that make me part dragon? I don't know dragons are that much use up there. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Dan, these isolated cabins are often associated with beauty and oneness with nature, but also with madness and delirium and hallucinations. And that brings us to going to Desolation Peak, where you went, in Washington State, in the United States, where Jack Kerouac had once retreated to experience isolation there. How did someone like Jack Kerouac go with the isolation of a remote cabin in the mountains in the Pacific Northwest? Well, in Jack's case, you have to imagine at that stage in his life, he hadn't really published anything. He'd, he'd published one book, but it hadn't done anything. And so he was very much a sort of jobbing writer. You know, he was writing feverishly, but he couldn't get arrested in terms of getting a publishing contract. And he had um, great friends who were um, fellow Buddhists, but they were poets. So Gary Schneider, Philip Whalen, people like that. And at the time, the Forest Service were advertising for fire lookouts so you would have a period of time on the top of a mountain in a little almost sort of greenhouse and your job would be to scan the horizon night and day for any smoke or fire in the forests around you in the mountains so that you could radio in your position and then it could be triangulated with another watchman and they could send in fire teams to put those fires out and someone like Gary Schneider was this amazing, very zen guy, you know, Kerouac's mate. And he said to Kerouac, if you want to do writing, this is a great opportunity because it affords you great sort of time to get on with stuff. And then he also said, but you have to be at peace with yourself. Otherwise, you know, you can go a bit crazy. And Kerouac clearly just heard the this would be great. You get a paid writing gig and was like, yeah, 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 that would be great. So he went up to the top of Desolation Peak and he was there in the mid 50s for 63 days. So just over two months, two weeks in, he has smoked all of his tobacco and he is starting to smoke coffee grounds. Uh, you know, you can do that. Well, I don't think you can, but he did. <laughs> he has invented a huge number of invisible friends and started a hugely competitive poker tournament with them. He has absolutely lost his mind in two weeks of just being on his own. And the thing is, it's that classic thing, you know, you shout into the void and the void says nothing and you're just there with yourself. And I think he was not prepared to be alone with himself for so long. He's quite self-aware. He's discovered that he's not the man he hoped and thought he was because Kerouac's whole shtick is this kind of like boondock outdoorsman bebop hobo man cub, you know, in the great beyond. <laughs> 
and he's up there and he's doing it quite badly. And at one point he has to kind of like hike all the way down the trail again to meet a kind of ranger team who come up the lake on a boat and they bring him, you know, more tobacco because he's radioed it in. You know, I've run out of cigarettes. And I imagine that as this great failure for him. You know, he just feels like such a child, like he's being patronized and deserves it from these real frontiersmen, these outdoorsmen. But the real kicker to all of this is a year to the day that he comes off Desolation Peak, On the Road is published. So suddenly his world explodes. He gets everything he ever wanted. He is arguably the first kind of radio and TV age cultural superstar writer. He is the kind of guy who did it all before Dylan did it. So the same things that forced Dylan off the road in the mid-60s, Kerouac did. And, you know, this is a guy who has quite... He's quite an addictive personality. He gets everything he ever wants, and it kind of kills him. The other thing that happens is that people want content from him you know nobody wanted his books a year before but now everyone wants to publish anything and everything he's ever done so he writes about his time on desolation peak over and over and over again he recycles his material so his stay appears in novels it's in desolation angels and also derma bums but there's this wonderful essay about his time up there and it's called Alone on a Mountaintop. And in that essay, you really get a sense that he's not kind of making it up. He's not trying to gloss over his failings. He's quite raw. And it was that essay that made me think, okay, I want to go and explore what it was like for him. How do you go, Dan, with that kind of ordeal, the ordeal of solitude and isolation? Um, well, it's funny because, you know, Starting out on the climbing book, and again, this one, various of my friends went, you know, this is ironic that you do this, Dan, because you're not very good on your own. And I think that's kind of true. I'm, I think a lot of my challenges as a traveler and a writer, I try to turn to my strength. So, for example, I don't drive. I've never really to have had any interest in driving. And I think that that's great in terms of being a travel writer because you meet people, you know, you're kind of at the the mercy of other people. And I find that quite interesting. I think the idea of being a travel writer and getting in your car and just getting there and there being no surprises or adventures along the way, it kind of cuts out a great deal of meetings with fellow people. I also embrace the idea of things going a bit wrong. So when I went to Desolation Peak, I went with my friend Colin. He was the one doing the driving, I should say. Lovely Colin. Good old Colin. Yeah, good old Colin. If you're listening, Colin, thank you, Colin. And, you know, we get up to the top of Desolation Peak and the cabin is still there, Kerouac's cabin, and it's still a manned watch house. So I knew that there would be a guy, probably a guy being in the US, probably a veteran, um, army veteran who would be up there. But I wasn't really able to get in touch with anybody and say I was coming. So I thought the guy here, either he'll be an enthusiastic, lovely man who kind of welcomes me in and shows me around, or he'll just basically tell me to get stuffed, to leave him alone. And luckily, the, the watchman up there was this guy, Jim Hentley, uh, who I'm still in touch with and is this wonderful man. He was in the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam on various things, although he wasn't deployed. He was slightly too young. And the 101st Airborne is Jimi Hendrix's division. So all along the watchtower and all of that stuff, which was a lovely bit of synchronicity. But he was telling us all about watchman life. And then afterwards, you know, it got quite dark again. And Colin and I went back to our tent. And a few hours later, we were woken up. Well, I was woken up. And all this trip, Colin was having trouble sleeping. And I woke up thinking, oh, Colin, come on, mate. You know, I've just done this enormous hike and I'm having a lovely time, but it's the middle of the night, man. And then I turned and Colin was still sound asleep next to me. So I thought two things in quick succession. First thing, Colin is asleep. Well done, Colin. Second thing, <laughs> that noise is not Colin. <laughs> and we are in this oh, very small tent and there's this enormous shadow on the tent. Oh. And the things that might be Colin having woken up and snuffling about are suddenly thrown into sharp relief. There's this enormous shadow on the side of a tent and there's this enormous thing outside the tent snuffling about. At which point Colin does wake up. 
He turns his head torch on and he says very loudly, you're awake. What's going on? And I said, no, Colin, no, go back to sleep and turn your head torch off. And then you just, there's just silence for the next, you know, as with, as with the haunting of Stefan, it might have been minutes. It might have been hours. You just had three souls silently listening and hoping that nothing bad happens. You know, the three of us, the bear without and us within just holding our breath. And then the thing outside stumps away sort of like, you know, this muffled sort of like, and then the next morning, these enormous prints outside and we went back up and we spoke to Jim and he said, Oh yeah, well that could have been one of the three bears that we have on the mountain at the moment. And he showed me pictures. And honestly, one of the bears had this Mr. T style Mohican that ran over its head, <laughs> like this skunk stripe that ran straight up. And I, and I was just like going through these mug shots, you know, can you identify the bear that bothered you last night? Sir? And I was like, Oh, I hope, I mean, in a way, I hope it was the Mr. T bear because that looks so tough. But there was one of the bears that kind of appeared to be just this kind of like limpy bear with one ear. And I was like, yeah, it was that one. <laughs> That's the guy. That's the guy. Had, had, had you seen what the bear did, that bear did to Leo DiCaprio in that movie, The Revenant? Like, that's not good. What bears do to humans that they don't like or feel are intruding on their territory, it's, it's, it's not good, Dan. I mean, the other thing, you know, if you can get out of the situation and write about it, it can't have been that bad. You also went from there down to a place in Utah where there is a Mars base. What was the appeal of that place for you, Dan? Well, again, when I was making the back of the envelope list about the book, I was thinking, where are the farthest flung places? And you can't get much further away than the idea of going into space, of, of going to Mars. And there was a magazine called Avant, and they had this just image on the cover of this spaceman effectively walking into this desert that was also full of snow and turned out to be this real place in the Utah desert. And the Mars Society have a base there called MDRS, the Mars Desert Research Station, where they kind of train would-be Martian astronauts of what it would be like to go to Mars because the Utah desert in this area, you know, this red scarlet terrain it's a analog for the Martian surface in many ways. And they've built a base out there and people go, not just NASA people and scientists, but people can also pay with an interest, you know, with an interest in space, they pay to go along and exist here and go on missions. And I had been emailing uh, Dr. Shannon Rupert, the overseer of this Mars base. And after I got off Desolation Peak, after I'd survived that, I took a sort of route down um, into Utah so tell me what happened on that incredibly strange flight you took from Washington State down to LA on your way to this Mars base. Okay, so the route I went, I went from Seattle down to LA and I was on this flight and I don't really like taking flights, but flights, as with so many things, if you talk to people, you discover these things. And the person sitting next to me on this flight turned out to be an Amazon lawyer, so a lawyer for, for Amazon. And we got talking and you have to imagine that it's kind of like sunset outside. So it looks fairly sort of apocalyptic outside. You have this kind of like big, big blood red sunset happening. And we got talking and she was saying about Amazon looking for this HQ2. You know, they want this second big base uh, because they're a sort of Seattle company. And we got talking about that. And I was saying, so why are Amazon looking to move? And she said, very straight faced, matter of factly, well, we're worried about North Korea firing nuclear missiles at the US. And if you think about it, Seattle and the, uh, the West Coast, they're close to North Korea in a way that East Coast America isn't. So if there's a nuclear apocalypse, people will need Amazon because obviously they'll need to buy new stuff that isn't irradiated. And so we're looking, part of our thinking is it would be good to have a base that was out of the kind of like fallout zone from a nuclear apocalypse. And what were you thinking when she was telling you this, Dan? I was actually thinking, okay, sure. I mean, the way she was saying it, it sounded perfectly reasonable in a way. But of course, at the same time, there's a part of me that's going, well, this is kind of bonkers. The fact that a multi-billion, trillion dollar company 
were thinking like this. Perhaps, you know, of course there is an Amazon bunker. Of course there is for Jeff and his family and all of this stuff. But it was an eye opener because, you know, going across America, particularly in when was it sort of 2017, 2018, these are kind of not early days of the kind of Trump government and things like that. But you had a lot of environmental protections being rolled back. There was a lot of paranoia about, there were a lot of people sort of like settling in to what this new government were doing. And it really capped off this paranoia and just weirdness from me being over there. You know, a lot of the world has kind of gone in a similar direction since, but it was so, so weird to just be talking to this lovely lady who was talking to me about the apocalypse. And then days later, you had Elon Musk being interviewed saying it's really important that human beings have this outpost on Mars in, cl- in case there's World War Three. And as a host planet, Earth becomes unusable. And so you're reading all this and just thinking, right ho. But the thing is about Mars... There's no way that tomorrow they're going to turn around and take several million billion people with them. It really would be this case of kind of an Eden style project starting again. And so talking to them and then going down to Utah and talking to these scientists, it was an eye opener. But also it was just kind of this sci-fi craziness. And then, you know, I get further down into Utah. I don't drive. And so all of my head is filled with these apocalyptic films and I get a bus because there weren't any trains running because the trains are kind of for coal and oil and stuff. So I get this kind of like very rickety bus down to where, where essentially I get as near to the Mars base as I can, but I've still got 60, 70, 80 miles to go, which is just straight into desert. I've no way of getting there, really. This is where a lot of my planning falls down because I kind of hope for the best in an enthusiastic tiggerish puppyish kind of way so i get to this kind of petrol station in the middle of nowhere in a place called green river which wasn't green and had no discernible river that i could see and i meet a hitchhiker a proper hitchhiker and the first thing he says to me so i'm just on my own i've got a small bag of kit but essentially i'm just this english guy in the middle of nowhere and he comes up to my elbow and he says are you a hitchhiker too (laughs) And so I spill a load of my coffee on the floor because I hadn't seen him coming. And this man looks like a little beaver of sort of like a ball of angry muscle and nicotine. And uh, I started to go, my response was, we're not the same. I mean, <laughs> no, no, well, ki- kind of, I suppose. And then I immediately kind of like start thinking, right, how'd you get out of this? Because I describe it as like being Hugh Grant stumbled onto the set of No Country for Old Men. <laughs> So so hitchhiking fundamentally failed in Utah because it's just like hanging a big sign around your neck saying, please kill me. So it turned out that I'd gone to university with a paleontologist who had recently moved to three or four hours down the road. And in America, like Australia, that's not very far, really. And so she got a fellow dinosaur expert who was having a day off to give me a lift in her truck. So all I had to do was survive three hours in this uh, Green River, Arby's sort of diner garage, which I just about managed to do. And while that was happening and the beaver man was similarly not getting picked up by various truckers, I was Googling this area of Utah and it turned out that I was in the epicenter for a type of raptor, the type in Jurassic Park called the Super Slasher. What, a dinosaur? Yes. This little dinosaur, which is essentially made of sort of like knives and teeth and sort of anger. So you're in this ancient dinosaur land out there in Utah, but you're also in some futuristic place where people are preparing to live on Mars. What kind of work can they do there? How can they even anticipate what it would be like to live on Mars while living on this Mars base in Utah? Well, a lot of it was sociological. So you'd get teams, new teams arriving, and perhaps they would have met before, perhaps not. But they would be in this kind of world that had been set up to, as closely as possible, simulate life on Mars. So their spacesuits have air circulating, but they aren't X kind of NASA things. They're the best approximation of what they'll be like. Um, and they're put in teams and they're given these tasks. And um, they also do things like every year they have the world's all scientists come together and test their Mars rovers, because this really is the best place to do that. But the thing that I discovered is that people just like Kerouac 
rapidly go quite crazy with the kind of isolation of it all. So after two weeks, and two weeks seems to be this Rubicon, if you can get past two weeks, you're doing quite well. But they've had people in full Mars spacesuit and on a Mars buggy just basically drive out of the desert into the nearest town and go for a burger because they've had it after two weeks, which was just kind of like crazy to me. When you consider that to get to Mars with current technology, it's going to be six to eight months in a spaceship there, just there. So you're going to be in a team of three, four, five people, six to eight months. You're not going to have much room. You're going to have to get on with each other. And then you're going to be on Mars for either a couple of months if there's an emergency and you need to come back, but probably a few years. And then it's six to eight months back. This is not a mission for people who kind of go a bit crackers after two weeks. And it was really, really interesting to me the way that Shannon Rupert was talking about the psychology of the sort of people they need to go to Mars when they go to Mars, because she was very insistent. And, you know, I believe them that at some point we are going to go, you know, the moon is 48 hours away. So, of course, when the Apollo missions went to the moon, they were sending kind of fighter pilots. You know, you need somebody with instant reactions who can deal very well in a very cool way with an emergency. When you're going to Mars, you need to send people who are very cool for years, who can put up with that kind of white noise of panic of being essentially a human being traveling as fast as possible away from Earth for months on end. But it's also going to be isolation without nature, which is wholly different from the kind of isolation you've been exploring. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly as you say, there'll be very few kind of um, sympathetic things on Mars. You know, Shannon Rupert, Dr. Shannon Rupert said to me at one point, Mars wants to kill us in the same way the moon wanted to kill us. You know, there's nothing kind about space travel. It's incredibly hostile terrain. It's the vacuum of space, you know, that thing. But in the same way, as with so much sci-fi, the farther people go out into space, the more it becomes about the individual and the individual's ability to put up with what is absolutely sensory deprivation. In the same way that when people go to the Arctic, they walk into this great white silence. They walk into something that's essentially wants to kill them, this great desert of cold, this abyss. And I'm fascinated by that, but it takes a certain sort of person to do that. I'm not sure I'm that person. Then you did go to Svalbard, up in the Arctic Circle, where your father had been. When you were there, did you see a polar bear? I did. I did. It was wonderful. I saw, first of all, um, a polar bear as we were approaching a place called Pyramiden, which is this abandoned Russian coal mining town. So a kind of mothballed Russian town, which is incredible. It has the most northerly bust of Lenin in the world. It has the most northerly grand piano uh, and it's got the most northerly hotel on earth. And just as we were approaching this place, we saw a polar bear. First thing we saw was its tracks. And it was enormous. And I said to Ireland, my uh, Norwegian guide, how old is this bear? Is this a big bear? And he looked at it and the paw in my glove and he went, this is a two year old female bear. And I said, so, so male polar bears, are they much bigger? And he went, oh yes. And then he moved on. And I was like, right, okay. Because, you know, um, Scandinavian people, they don't really like to extrapolate. They like to, they like to sort of like say things like that. You know, I'm part troll, so I can deal with it. A male polar bear, would that be bigger? Oh, yes. And then they move on. Um, and it was incredible. And then the next day I saw a mother bear, perhaps that bear and two cubs. Um, and it was, it was wonderful. But at the same time going up there, I was acutely aware that everywhere we went on Svalbard, um, there were tracks, you know, people had been there before us. Um, and there were, there was a lot of tourism up there. There were a lot of Russians carrying around large rifles for polar bears and smoking lots of cigarettes. And there were a lot of tourists from all over the place. And it really got me thinking about the idea of sustainability and how we can kind of try and protect these wild places because for all of the human urge to go and to see we want them still to be there so that our children and our children's children and their children can still witness the wonders of the world 
Well, this gets to the heart of the, the question, I think, is that question that Richard Aoadi always asks at the beginning of his Travel Man series, which is, we're here, but should we have come? Yes. It's very tempting to say, to divide the world into kind of those guys and us guys, you know? Of course, you know, we're on some, when I was up in Svalbard, we were on snowmobiles and we would pass other people on snowmobiles and we would always think, there's so many other people on snowmobiles. And of course, the people passing us in the opposite direction were thinking exactly the same thing. And there's a sense of entitlement. You know, I have gone and I deserve to be here and perhaps other people don't. And it's a real problem. It's a real kind of quandary. I, I worry about it all the time when I travel to, to places like Iceland. I worried about that the whole time I was there. Yeah. Towards the end of my time in Svalbard, I really hated going on the snowmobiles. They're the fastest way to get around, but they're fundamentally noisy. They're not doing the environment any good. And, you know, they're quite uncomfortable. It's like going around on a motorbike with a flat tire. I didn't enjoy it. But then towards the end of a trip, I went on a dog sled with a team of amazing dogs and um, a lady called Astrid, who's the most amazing and wise dog team driver. And that was incredible. So whereas the snowmobiles were loud and obnoxious in so many ways, the dogs were beautiful and silent, apart from their harnesses jingling. You're lower to the ground when you're on the sled. So it feels like you're going at the same speed and you're going at an animal speed, which I think fundamentally the human brain understands better. And it really put me in mind of the idea that we shouldn't go to these places, these wild, beautiful places, in order to kind of juice them, you know, to rinse them out. We shouldn't do that Instagram thing that everyone does, where you go to the place that everyone else has gone, because that's the thing you want to see. We need to take these places kind of on their own terms and go in good faith to discover rather than going to see the things we know are already there. Does that make sense? It certainly does. It's been really lovely speaking with you, Dan. These are amazing stories, and I loved your book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.